Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his, his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we hear you. As your word being read aloud, we hear it. I pray, O Lord, that you would help us to hear it fresh and new this morning. That it wouldn't seem mysterious to us at all. It wouldn't seem vague at all to us. O Lord, give eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About 10 years ago, maybe a little more, I was at the home of some friends and we were at a college football watch party and lots of noise going on. It was a big rivalry game and everybody hollering and yelling and eating snacks and and whatever. And in the middle of all of this, as I'm watching, um, their little five-year-old daughter came up and sat in my lap. And she just looked up in my face. Just looking at me, staring at me for a minute. And she said, how old are you? (laughs) And I told her and she said, you're old. You're going to die soon. (laughs) I said, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. She just smiled, hopped off my lap and went off to play. Not a care in the world. She wasn't afraid to talk about dying. And I'm not afraid to die. Honestly, because I know the one in whom I believed. But she's right. I'm getting old. I was getting old (laughs) 10 years ago. I'm still getting old. I'm not old yet, but I'm getting there. I can't see as well as I used to now. uh, While I used to just wear reading glasses occasionally, because my eyes would get tired now, I got to wear glasses all the time in order to see clearly. I'm getting old. Well, as I was studying this chapter in Revelation, I realized, however, uh, that when it comes to Christ, I actually see more clearly today than I did some 40 years ago when I first met him. And I'm thankful for that time, time that I've had to get to know him, time to understand more deeply how much he loves me. And time to see him more clearly as he really is. Well, the passage before us is meant to do that for us. It's meant to help us with that. In order that we might see more clearly what was and what is and what is to come. It's meant that we might understand more fully the reality in which we live And know without a doubt that what happens tomorrow matters today. This, it tells us, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to the Apostle John. Why? To show his servants what must soon take place. This is reality, all in one chapter, past, present, and future, all wrapped up in one. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. 
And the first thing we must realize is who it's from. It tells us down in verse 4, from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And what does He come bringing us in this letter, this book of Revelation? He comes offering us grace and peace, it tells us here. Grace and peace, God's unmerited favor and rest. Ask yourselves, why then are we so troubled? Why are we so weary? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And the truth before us, it tells us once again in verse 5 that He loves us. Not just that He loved us by dying for us on the cross. That is the truth. But it's not just that. He loves us. We have to pay particular attention to the, the verb tenses in this chapter. There's past tense, present tense, and future tense all over the place. He loves us with an ever-present love. He has loved us. He loves us. He will forever love us. There is nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. Nothing. He loves us. And the truth is, it tells us, He has freed us from our sins. That, that's a phrase you've heard before and we throw it around and we know it's true, but it doesn't mean a lot to us. But stop and think for just a second. He hasn't just freed us from slavery to our sin as if He came to a slave auction and bought us and said, okay, I grant you your freedom. Good luck with that. No, He has freed us. And what does it tell us here? He has washed us. He has cleansed us. His sin-atoning work is finished forever. Jesus has bled. He has washed us. And we are clean far beyond fear of future defilement. He has freed us. And I don't know if you've heard that modern worship song, Chain Breaker. He's a chain breaker. He's a prison-shaking Savior. That whatever has entangled you today, He breaks it still. He frees you with an ongoing freedom that is real. And in verse 6, it tells us here in Revelation, He has made us to be a couple of things. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to His God and Father. We can walk like kings among men, honored before the Lord. Our thoughts, our aims, our hopes, our longings are all of a nobler kind than those of mere fallen man. We have a heritage, is what this is telling us. We have a heritage that the world does not have. 
And we have prepared for us, Scripture tells us, a crown of life which will never fade away. He has made us to be a kingdom. And He has made us priests to His God and Father. Which means, if we live as we should live, then our bodies are temples. Our hearts are altars. And our lives are offerings to the Lord. Let those things declare to Him who loves us so, to you alone, be the glory and dominion forever. And then in verse 7, it tells us, Behold, He's coming. He is coming. Not He will come, but He is coming. This chapter tells us John, our brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. These are the last days and they are days of trouble and tribulation. Jesus promised his disciples they would have tribulation and we have it. John, our brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance or patient endurance which are found where? In Jesus. There's that phrase again. In Jesus. We will face tribulation. We will face the reality that we are partakers in His kingdom and we are partakers in the patient endurance that we find in Christ. Well, John was a prisoner in exile on the island of Patmos because of the word of God, it tells us, and the testimony of Jesus And he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is some 60 plus years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And suddenly, under the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, he is taken up in a vision into the very throne room of heaven. His attention is suddenly sharpened. He's almost startled as he beholds the coming of the Lord. Behold, he is coming. He is coming. John has told us some 2,000 years ago almost. Have you and I ever realized the coming of Christ and the reality of it as vividly as this? We know that the Word became flesh And dwelt among us, we have beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John's Gospel tells us. But do we with just as much certainty believe that He is coming right now? He's already on His way. Stop and think about that for a minute. It's not just back then His disciples beheld His glory. Not just... Back then, Jesus came and dwelt among us for a little while. But that He is coming. He's already on His way. All that He's been doing and is doing and will do in all His providence and grace is a mere preparation for His soon-to-be arrival. We grow weary 
and lose heart. We stumble, we fall, we get restless because it's been so long since his ascension and still Jesus has not yet come and seen us face to face. But we don't know the things that had to be arranged for by God. We don't know how much time was absolutely necessary for the Lord's designs to be put in place. Those intervening centuries from the time of the disciples and the Apostle John until now, all those hundreds, thousands of years have been full of wonders. How much grace has been given? How many hearts have been changed? How much glory has been revealed in the last 2,000 years? The Lord is not moved by fear or passion uh, to act hastily as we often do. But when the times will have reached their fulfillment, Scripture says, then will come the consummation of all things. Behold, He's coming. Great uh, preacher and theologian by the name of Charles Spurgeon, who's known by many across many denominational uh, boundaries, once said this about this vision that was given to the Apostle John. Charles Spurgeon said, My imagination has often set forth that dread scene, but better still, my faith has realized it. I have heard the chariot wheels of the Lord's approach and I have endeavored to set my house in order for His reception. I have felt the shadow of that great cloud which shall attend Him, dampening the ardor of my worldliness. I hear even now in spirit the sound of the last trumpet whose tremendous blast startles my soul to serious action and puts force into my life. I wish our souls would be so startled to serious action that such force would be put into our lives that with renewed vigor, uh, with a sense of urgency and rejoicing, we too would throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and run the race marked out for us in Christ, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us. You see, the stark reality is that He is coming, even now, and that's exactly why tomorrow matters today. He's coming, not with the swaddling clothes of His infancy or the persecution and shame of being put to death on the cross, but He is coming with the glorious majesty of heaven itself. And this chapter tells us He comes in judgment. This very present reality is near. It will soon take place for all to see, it tells us. And when He comes, there will be no doubt that the King of glory has arrived in all His might and splendor. But there will be those who are not pleased to see him. Verse 7 tells us they will mourn over him. It tells us that those of us who do not grieve as those who have no hope, 
those of us who have turned away from their sin and trust in the Lord who died and rose again, who wait upon the Lord, even now with this patient endurance and confidence and joy, shall be caught up together with Him on that great day of His coming. First Thessalonians chapter 4 echoes this whole thing. But for those who still live in darkness, the Son of Man coming in all His glory will bring nothing but dread and horror upon them. It says they will wail on account of Him for their false hopes of living in sin and being a God unto themselves, for doing what is right in their own eyes. All of it will come to nothing, nothing but grief and torment. They will wail on account of Him. And they will not be able to hide themselves. They will not be able to hide Him from their eyes. They will dread the sight of Him. But it will come upon Him, the text tells us. Behold, He's coming. And verse 7 tells us that, yes, uh, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Those who nailed him to the cross. The one who took the spear and pierced him in his side. And all who had a hand in crucifying the Lord of glory are those who pierced him. But who else has pierced him? Is piercing him. Is it not the one who professed him yet turned back to the world and its ways? Is it not those who go to church every Sunday to hear of him and yet remain hearers only rather than doers of his word? Those who destroy their own souls by refusing to yield to his covenant love and the call that we've talked about that is upon their lives. They refuse His cleansing blood as being sufficient enough for their sin and the sin of others. And they cling to their own understanding of what life should be and how to make it the way they think it should be. Such as these do not mourn or wail because of their sin, but because of Him and the judgment that is coming with Him on that day. Behold, He's coming. I say these things to you. The text says these things to you not to try to scare you into believing. Not to try to uh, get you to put on even more of an outward appearance of faith. These things are written and said to you to be the light of God's merciful truth shining upon you this morning that you might listen to His voice, cling to Him, and truly live. The day of child's play and foolish delays are over. No more excuses. It's said that the world will know that we are Christians by our love. So I implore you, in light of God's mercy, the mercy that He has already shown you, the mercy that He is showing to you, the mercy that knows no end. I implore you, 
be reconciled to God and to one another, for he is coming. The book of Revelation is full of wondrous, amazing things. Chapter 1 is just the beginning. As we hear the word of God, heed the things written in this prophecy. We need to remember a few things, though. We need to remember that Revelation, this book, was not written to give us the details of how to decipher the end times. It's not a secret coded message as to how to interpret the times in which we live. But instead it was given us to help us live out our faith in the tribulation of these last days. It's given to us to help us to know how to live in our own times. We should, as a people, worry far less about how to decipher the deep mysteries of this book. And we should focus much more on how to live in light of the commands of this book. The real reason it's given to us is not to decipher, but to disciple us. The common denominator throughout it all is Jesus Christ in all his glory. The one who was and is and is to come, verse 8 says. This is a little peek behind the curtain. This is a bit of an unveiling, a, 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 a brief coming of face-to-face with the victorious Jesus Christ that's revealed to us here. And look at verse 10. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The uh, psalmist in Psalm 29 talks about the voice of the Lord in these terms. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. And the Apostle John here in verse 10. says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And it said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. These are the seven churches throughout Asia at the time. Uh, these are explain what is written, each specific commands and directions and Uh, insights that the Lord wants spoken to each one of those churches you'll find in chapters 2 and 3. Those seven churches throughout Asia who are unique, who are special in God's eyes, and God sees every one of them uniquely, intimately. And this is a picture of all of God's people. God knows each one of us intimately. Personally, he knows what are our deepest struggles. And he has words of encouragement. He has commands. He has warnings throughout Scripture for us. Just like he does in these letters 
to the seven churches. In a way, it's each one is unique and individual, but all together it speaks of all the people of God throughout all time. What we are, what our tribulations are, and what God is calling us to. It's a clear, loud voice that the Apostle John hears. And in verse 12, for the disciple whom Jesus loved who was perhaps closer to him than any other, this Christ that he sees, this Jesus, is not the Jesus of the Last Supper. This is not even the dying servant on the cross or the, even the resurrected Lord that is risen. He has now become the Lord of glory. And the Apostle John falls on his face trembling before him. Because he sees one like the Son of Man, it tells us in verse 13. This is a direct reference back to that prophecy of Daniel. We read out of chapter 10 some of the exact same language. If you go back to chapter 7, you hear of the Ancient of Days and the words are identical in the description here. There's one like a son of man who looks amazingly, graphically like this Jesus that the Apostle John sees standing before him. And verse 17 tells us that the Apostle John was struck with fear. But with a touch from the right hand of the Lord, this right hand of the Lord is a, is a phrase that always expresses this deeper meaning of power and rule and favor, and peace, and protection. The right hand reaches down and he places it on the Apostle John and he knows it is the Lord. The next time you are struck by your sinfulness and your unworthiness to stand in his presence, fall on your face and feel his right hand placed upon you and do not be afraid. Do not. Be afraid. This is a message about a glorious, victorious Christ. The reality of things which have been seen, which are, and which will soon take place, it tells us. It is not a book about current events. It is not a uh, book that describes what's going on with Israel or Islam or, or the President of the United States or the President of Russia and, and how we can interpret all these words in the book of Revelation uh, through the lens of our current circumstances. That's not this kind of book. That's not what is put before you. That is not what the Lord of glory has come to communicate to you this morning. It's not a book of current events to be deciphered. This is a book of hope. A book of hope that addresses the very real needs of this generation. We live in a cynical, pessimistic, postmodern world. A preoccupied world. Not just the youngest generation, but our whole world is preoccupied with itself. And we need the hope that only Jesus Christ and His appearing can bring us. This book tells us that there's something eternal above and beyond this material world 
something bigger than Austin, Texas. Bigger than Texas. Bigger than this entire world. And he's the Lord of glory. And he is coming. So this is a book of worship. Too often evangelicals today have made Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, into their good old buddy. My best friend. He's so much more than a friend. We're no longer, it seems, in awe of him as the Lord of glory. If you read the book of Revelation, I guarantee in one way or another, you're going to find yourself flat on your face spiritually in awe of him. When you see what Christ Jesus has done for you and how he now stands before you and all his glory is revealed in the words of this book, you will worship if you trust him, if you believe in him, you will worship. And this is a book about clarity, about our lives and what the church should be and do in this world. That's what the next few chapters are, are going to lay out specifically to these seven churches. And finally, this is a book about courage. Courage for the difficult days ahead. It's all about why tomorrow matters today. It's always appropriate that during the Easter season, we, uh, together with the saints of old, declare that Christ is risen because He's risen indeed. My prayer is that with that same joy and hope, we would also declare all the days of our lives the vivid reality that He is coming and He's almost here. May our lives show forth that blessed reality, that sure and certain hope that I mentioned last week from from the prophet Job, where he said in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he shall stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. And here's the next sentence in Job 19. After he says, I will, I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another how my heart yearns within me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The book of Revelation ends uh, with these words in chapter 22. It draws to an end with these words. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him, him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, as it was with the Apostle John, the disciple whom you loved, may it be so for us this morning. 
that whether it's today or tomorrow or next year or a century from now, may every day of our lives, each morning when we rise, each night when we rest, may our hearts sing, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in your name. Amen.